Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host, Dwight Heck, and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more months than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however emotionally and mentally as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day and welcome to Give a Heck. On today's show, I welcome Tyler Foley. Tyler is an accomplished film and stage performer and has been acting in film and television since he was six years old. Tyler is passionate about helping others confidently take the stage and impact an audience with their stories. He is currently the managing director of Total Buy-In and author of the number one best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. Tyler is a father, husband, son, and performer in that order. Some days he feels like he has dabbled in every industry on the planet, from oil and gas to aviation to film and television, but that diverse experience is what has made him so versatile. His ultimate goal is to coach people to step into their speaking power so they can create a positive global impact by reaching the hearts and minds of millions with their stories. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Tyler. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and share with us some of your life journey. Oh, thanks for having me, Dwight. And thank you for the wonderful introduction. You're welcome. Yeah, I took a took some info you sent me, went to your site. Yeah, I like <laughs> I like uh, finding out about the people I'm going to interview because you've been gracious to give me your time. So I got to be, you know, putting stepping up to the plate and putting the boots to the ground and make sure that I know a little bit about you. Sometimes they're hit and miss, but yours was yours was easy because you've accomplished a lot and I was quite impressed. So Tyler, one of the things I focus on on my podcast on Give a Heck is a person's origin story. And the reason for that is a person's origin, not their just their back end story. Some people call it that and that's fine. I want to know everything from your earliest recollections from little Tyler all the way to way up to where you're at now, because even the simplest things from our early memories and things that have occurred in our life trigger and drive us to get out of our, our own way, right? So if you could do me a favor, what are the key things from your childhood to adulthood that led you to where you're at currently? Well, I mean, as you pointed out, everything has its purpose that, you know, as Tony Robbins says, life happens for us, not to us. And I have basically every event in my life from early childhood, as you pointed out until now has led me to the position that I'm in today, where I get to travel the world and speak for a living. And a lot of that started in my very, very early years, some of my first memories. Um, it's interesting that you ask because it's actually an exercise I do in all of my training classes, um, even in our free Facebook group uh, that I run called uh, Endless Stages. Uh, it's an exercise that I'll do at least once a month with the participants in there. And that is we I asked them, what is, if I was to divide your life into five even time periods, and you look at each one of those time periods, what is the most significant memory? 
from each one of those time periods, because those tend to be our powerful stories. That's where they come from. So when I do this exercise, um, you know, I think my, my earliest childhood memories, and I, I have memories from very early in my childhood, I barely one years old, I can remember things I can remember moving um, from uh, one small town to another into the house that my mom still lives in to this day. Um, it's actually a house that's been in our family for five generations now, with it, with me taking over um, uh, on the on the mortgage. So we've, you know, I've I have these powerful memories from the same house. I think that's one of the things that helps too is that uh, it's easy to go back in time and think because I have uh, a space of familiarity that hasn't really changed. So I, you know, I have, I have memories of being out in the backyard and, and picking up gravel. I think of like, I have old cups. Like I, I remember drinking iced tea out of steel cups that were green and blue that my mom had um, when I was like two years old, when our patio, our back patio was still uh, gravel and not the concrete that it is currently. Um, my two most formative memories from my early childhood actually came within three months of each other. The first one being the first time I was ever on stage in a Christmas pageant for our elementary school uh, performance. And I got to play Joseph and, you know, the sound of applause that I got for the first time, it's an auditory memory. It's a visual memory. Like I can think I can, I can see the whole auditorium. I can see the stage. I, I know where I was. I know where my friend Lisa Byers was. I remember, you know, I, the set dressing, I can, I can picture it all the way, but what really stands out is the sound of, of an audience laughing and clapping. And then three months later, the, the most uh, powerful and significant sound that I've ever heard in my entire life occurred uh, February 10th of 1986. And that was the sound that my mother made uh, when an RCMP officer and my family physician came to our back door and told her that my father would never be returning home. And, and the sound that she made was um, just guttural and animalistic, and it reverberated through the house. It, it was the loudest and quietest sound I've ever heard, which is really odd to, to try to describe to people. But it was this moanful wail, but it was completely and totally shattered, and I never want to hear it again. And that has driven a lot of the decisions that I've made, because from that event, and in combination with this love of theater that I developed, um, that really created my early childhood. You know, I was constantly in, in school plays. I was doing um, regional speech competitions. I ended up going to a fine arts high school. I actually didn't even graduate from that fine arts high school. I had I had gone um, in my last uh, school year out to um, to Vancouver to pursue acting as a as a profession. So I was out in Vancouver in like May and graduation wasn't even until June. So I, you know, all of those things were informed early on. Plus I had a medical incident when I was 17, um, just before I graduated that paralyzed the left side of my body. So though all of those things have informed my decisions, they, you know, it pushed me, it gave me a drive to want to do performance. And then at some point I realized that performance wasn't satisfying me anymore, that I wasn't happy in the career. And I was able to retire after 20 years in, in film and television and theater at the age of 25, <laughs> you know, so to be able to have your first retirement at 25 is pretty awesome. And then I was able to take that, the money that I had made acting and uh, pursue uh, higher education, get an engineering background, 
start my own company. That company failed. All of these things have informed where I am today and the learning that and lessons that I've taken from each one of those events and along with the people that came into my life because of it. You know, I, having lost my father, I gained 10 father figures in my life because I had so many men come to my aid. Um, you know, one of the most significant being uh, Dr. Bob Corbett, who not only became a, a father figure and, and a true mentor to me, but also aided me in my recovery after my, after I was paralyzed. So, you know, he was instrumental in not only healing me physically, but healing me emotionally and healing me mentally. And, uh, you know, I, would I have had that kind of an investment from an individual like that if my father hadn't passed away? You know, one could never know. And it's not a game of what if I just know that in the path that I was given and the path that I have walked, I had all of these incredible men in my life as as role models who um, were helping to raise me and raise me up. And I, for that, I'm always appreciative. Yeah, and that's amazing what we talked about prior to recording about trials and tribulations and going up and down throughout our lives. And and that's exactly what has happened in your life. You've had lots of struggles, but you've never sat and been camped. One of the things I talk about a lot is in life, people get to a point where they camp and they stay camped. And then they talk, they're on that hamster wheel and they just, they get stuck, go to work, go home, get paid. But you've had lots of adversities and challenges, but you've constantly elevated yourself above them. Was it easy? Absolutely not. There's lots of details in between there that would, if we had time to discuss it, it would, you know, it would give the listeners an idea, but you give the listeners an idea that there's never a reason to quit in life, to stay camp, that you can always start being, you know, and climbing. And you mentioned the fact of one of the things that really I liked, you said, you know, your dad had passed, but you had father figures around 10 of them that stepped in to support you. Well, that's one of the things I think is wrong in our society today, that village mentality to pick up the, the slack of people that can't, you know, do it for themselves or don't have the support, mm -hmm. even with your medical, with your paralysis and getting support from that doctor, which is amazing. I, I think about how selfish our society has gotten and the neighbor next door could be a single parent, not necessarily a woman can be a single, cause I've been single. I was a single dad. My kids are all adults now, five kids. So there was times when I could have used the village and the village wasn't there. It mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily supportive or they were trying to be supportive, but not in the right ways. And you were blessed to have, as you mentioned, you know, around 10 people that were supporting you after your father well, it, passed. It was at least 10. Like I can, I know that it, it's more than that. And as you said, it takes a, a village. I had an entire town and I think it helped too, that my mom was, um, not necessarily a prominent figure within my town, but she was a well-known entity because she was the receptionist and administrator for the top accounting firm in, in the town. So everybody had, everybody knew Karen because you had to, because you could write, because yeah. you were coming in at least once a year to say hi to her. And we had a lot of businesses. So she was well-known within the business community. My father was very active in the act of 2030. He was very active in, in a lot of the social clubs, um, a, a community leader. He was a, a teacher 
And so a lot of people knew him and he was well-known and well-liked. And uh, so I think there was a natural want to rally around my mom and, and offer her support. And I think one of the things too, is my mom has always had this inner strength where she wouldn't, she wouldn't ask for help outright unless she absolutely positively needed it. Uh, but she also wasn't afraid to ask for help when she did need it, but she was also smart enough to accept it and accept it gracefully when it was offered, whether she felt she needed it or not, because it's funny how you never know, you never realize the burden you're carrying until somebody says, Hey, let me, can I help you with that? And I take, you take it off the shoulder and all of a sudden you feel so much lighter and you're like, I didn't even realize I was carrying that weight until you took it. So thank you. And I think my mom was always very, very uh, smart with that in that um, she was never so prideful that she would turn away help. You know, do you want to help? Absolutely. Sure. I can use that. And if she didn't know what it was, she was smart enough to say, I, I don't even know what help I need. What, what can we do? Right. If you're, if you're willing to offer, what, what do you have to offer? And that, you know, watching my mom raise us, cause it couldn't have been easy. I, I feel that I've had a very uh, privileged life and I don't know how my mom pulled it off because, uh, you know, she was, wasn't necessarily well paid as a, basically a high profile secretary at an accounting firm. And yet she, we, me and my sister never lacked for anything. You know, I never felt that we didn't have anything. And, uh, and she, again, mom had some really great support. My, my aunt Terry and my uncle Brad lived three blocks away and we spent a lot of time over there. I think they, you know, we'd go there after school and I'd, and hang out with my cousin, Jamie and, you know, and they, you know, we'd have supper over there and, and there, when that wasn't happening, we had other friends that were there. We had, you know, people who'd come and stay at the house. There was a point where my mom was letting out rooms in our house and, um, I was, I was the only man in, in the house of eight women <laughs> because uh -oh. we had, you know, we had borders up in, yeah. in, in the loft, in the attic. We had, you know, down in the spare rooms, we had out in the, in the front room, like we had there were, and then my mom and my sister, even the dog was a girl. And uh, <laughs> I was, I was literally the only, the only man in the house. And so that was an interesting perspective too, to be able to, um, it's humbling. It really is well, to, to be and, raised and as to, a, as a male with all the, with the women around us. My, well, my yeah. four, remember four daughters, my one son can tell you lots. <laughs> well, but, and that's exactly it. You have this really interesting perspective, especially at the age that I was, cause that would have been between about uh, 11 and 15. Yeah. So did you, you know, you're just starting to develop a, as a man really just start to hit puberty and, and, um, and to, to have, that exposure, I think really, again, helped me and growing up in the arts too. Like I was, I was in professional theater at that point and, um, you know, being, I, I'm really comfortable around in my own skin and I'm really, really comfortable, uh, around women. And I, 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 frankly, I find it easier to interact with women than it is with men. I do. I find that I have a hard time identifying with guys now, uh, just because of it. And so that's actually a thing that I've, I've sought later in life is how do I find some fraternal friendships, um, where I can have a, a really good relationship on that masculine side, because it's always been the feminine side that I've embraced. And you know what, I love that you bring that up because majority of the people I've been close to in my life have been 
women. I won't get into my story, my backstory, but I can totally relate with that. And I find even the men that I am close to today, and there's very few, have always had close women role models, and they Mm -hmm. still do. And most of their friends are women. So I I can completely connect with you on that. It is tough. And again, I'm not here to bash men because I am one. (laughs) But (laughs) it is the fact that, you know, it's men have been raised from little boys up. And I've had people on my podcast that talk about that have done the research to be tough, right? To be the, you know, dad, let's say when your dad was still surviving, you may not remember it, but I know my dad would, oh, take care of your sisters and take care of your mom because he'd be off to work or he'd be gone for whatever, however many days um, outside of the home. And, you know, little boys shouldn't cry, holding your emotions. And then you take that, garbage because it is garbage into adulthood and it affects our own relationships with women and in a significant other situation i find anyway and it makes it hard for us to connect with other men because we're we're not being vulnerable and that's the thing that when you talk about having that good relationship with a man it's because most men don't know how to be vulnerable with one another they're afraid they're going to give away give up too much and put themselves in a vulnerable situation where they can get taken advantage of or made to feel bad. And they always want to portray that, that facade of being a warrior, right? That knight in shining armor. Yeah. And the, and it's even the language around that and how we describe it. It 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 honestly drives me insane. Um, It's uh, one of the things again, in the uh, workshops that we do, uh, particularly in my three-day workshop, for me, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. If you want to be authentic, you need to be vulnerable. Part of that vulnerability is being honest with who you are and being unashamed too. Like I have no problem saying that I sit to pee. <laughs> you know, <laughs> frankly, it's it's a, it's a far more sterile way to go. I'm, you know, I'm putting double thumbs up for the people listening. One's watching on the way. <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, and and but I want to pee I, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I and ultimately, I'm the one who ends up having to clean the bathroom. So uh, I'm doing myself a favor. And uh, but I've, I, I remember, you know, um, uh, having this discussion with another friend and his father yeah. actually openly mocked him when he saw him peeing, sitting on the toilet. Like, and I, can't, I to, to me, that is mind blowing. Like, I don't know, even know why that would be a thing an to, issue yeah yeah like you know and but it, it profoundly affected him it profoundly affected him and his relationship with his father to the point to where his father recently passed away um and he didn't even go to his funeral wow you know and those, I, and little, I, those little things though eh, tyler it, yeah. it, it, we if i say little things but it's not a little thing it's no, it, plants, it plants a seed in your brain that continues to fester and grow yeah. And that and, child and really doesn't becomes, realize it. It's, it's sad. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it's cancerous in it, its nature. And I, I, it's one of the things, particularly as somebody who is a professional communicator that I am constantly analyzing the language I use around my own daughter because she's six years old right now. And, um, you know, I, I my book is dedicated to her. Show us you your know, book. Yeah. Have you got the, it there? The power to speak naked. And the, in the dedication, it says to my daughter, may you always have the courage to speak up for what you believe in and the confidence that your voice will be heard. And so I'm trying to raise her to know that she can talk. But at the same time, I also know that there are times where daddy needs to concentrate 
And I've been very aware of not telling her to be quiet, right? I don't want to silence my daughter, but I need her to not be talking right now because daddy's doing a podcast or I need to concentrate or it's worse when she's trying to talk to me from behind uh, while I'm driving down the deer foot and rush hour traffic and she's bah, 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 telling me about her day and daddy just needs to not get into an accident. So I'm very conscious not to say be quiet. What I say to her is I, I want to hear your story, but we need it to be at an appropriate time. So that she knows that it's not that I don't, that her voice isn't valuable or that I don't value her opinion or that I don't want to talk to her, but now is not the appropriate time. And then that gives us the ability to say, when is an appropriate time? And then I can concentrate and I can, I can say, because just because I'm a speaker doesn't mean that I come into your house at 11 o'clock at night and uh, give you my 45 minute keynote, right? There are appropriate times for all of these forms of communication and, and for her to be able to learn that is helpful. But I know that as a coach, as somebody who is training people to be able to speak from stage, the two most common things that I hear from where people have uh, a fear of speaking to a crowd comes from usually one of two early childhood memories. It's either growing up in a, in a household where children are to be seen, not heard, and where they've been told, quiet, quiet, sh shut up, shut up, shut up, be quiet. Or it's the more common one where uh, they were called upon unexpectedly, usually in an elementary school class, uh, by a teacher to give an answer to a question that they didn't know or they gave the wrong one, and everybody laughed or they were told, no, they were wrong. And they've equated that initially with when I speak, I am, I am in trouble or I am hurt or uh, there is a negativity to me using my voice. So the safe thing, the protected thing to do is to not use my voice and having to overcome that. Because as you said, it's such a small little thing initially, right? The one time guaranteed it only happened one time where the teacher called on them, they didn't know because the other thing that they learned was now I need to pay attention. Um, and so then they started to know, but then the, the rest of the time they were fearful that they were ever going to be called upon. And it just, this one incident has grown to a point where now people are inhibiting their, their career development, their career growth, because they don't, they refuse to speak in front of people because of this, the, as you said, a tiny seed that has grown into this massive oak of self-doubt and uh, lack of, of self-worth based on this incident where they were told to be quiet and trying to reverse that is really hard. Like it's really easy to pull a seed out of the ground when it's just been planted. It's really hard to unearth an oak once it's got its roots taken. And but it, let's, you know, take, so let's take that one step further though. So, you know, we get that seed planted. Let's use the example of the, the, you know, teacher asking somebody in a question and putting them on the spot. I don't even like as an adult being put on the spot like that either, mm -hmm. because it, it doesn't necessarily mean I don't know the answer, but if you're going to be in a circumstance, let people know, Hey, be prepared. You might get asked a question. And if you're in a, if I'm on a group with a group or on a call, and if you don't want to be one of those people that's called upon, let me know now if you're not comfortable. Give people that out because not everybody is wired to be the person that's going to give that answer or wants to. Maybe they want to just listen, their personality sitting in the shadows, but they're still effectively learning. And that's their learning trait. And I find 
so that student that gets embarrassed, gets laughed at, gets told, you know, like you said, it's shocked into a paying attention, but now they're fearful. They're not really learning the greatest. Then they go home and they might mention it to their parents. And depending on the generation of that parent or the person that's raising them, they can add fuel to that already damage to that fire and cause it to even flare up more. I've found that time and time again. So little Johnny or Sally leaves school, comes home, gets made, you know, they might share with their mom or dad. And I'm not saying all parents are like this, but I've run into it where that parent will just make it worse. So little Johnny or Sally are now, they're fearful at school because they might get called. They got to, then they come home and then they're scared to, you know, how, how was your day? It was fine when really it wasn't. They stopped sharing with their family too. Then all that bottles up, right? It's just, it's, it's a pattern and it's something that needs to be addressed within our school systems though, where they need to have um, kids learn how to deal with their emotional state of mind and yeah. learn that, you know, you're working with the children. You're not the tyrant over top of those children and not there to, to make them fearful. And I still see yeah. it today. Yeah, it's actually one of the reasons why my wife and I picked the school that we did for my daughter to go to because they they're uh, very much in tune with and in key to emotional intelligence and raising children. So, like you know, Kenzie's at my daughter is at an age where she um, she's just she's learning her voice and so she's speaking back and she's trying to find her independence. And uh, she's very much her father's daughter. I have a, a wicked Irish temper and uh, she will rage. You know, she's no like, and it's zero to 60 and like no time. You'd be happy, happy. Why don't I, blah, blah, blah. You're like, whoa, where did it come from? <laughs> and, and, you know, the teachers, uh, one of the beautiful things about this school, you know, the teachers reach out and said, we, we've noticed this. This is becoming more than a one-off. This is a bit of a pattern. Have you noticed it at home too? So it's not even, uh, we're blaming, we, we want to know if this is at school or if this is school and home, because if it's just at school, there's something happening at school. If it's school and home, then it's a personality thing and we can work on it as a, as a, as a stored front. No blame with it, just, you know, these are the kids. And, you know, so they reached out to us. And one of the things that, both of us agreed on uh, as parents and and the and the teaching staff what's having her just name the emotion like why do you feel this way and what triggered it what what made you feel that way like where how you know and are there other responses that you can have and over the last couple of months we've been really working on just naming the emotion like how do you feel right now and as she's naming it she's starting to see how first of all her own patterns and how ridiculous it is and this is a skill that's being taught to her at six i wish i had that skill at six. Now I'm lucky again, I grew up in, in the arts, in theater. And I think one of the reasons why I was able to accomplish what I have in my life is because I've always been aware of emotions, but I didn't, I didn't have the emotional intelligence that my daughter has. What I had was emotional awareness. I knew how my body felt. I knew ways of making my body feel other ways. So that was, that was one of the big gifts that I got was that I was aware that I could control my emotions at a very early age. I didn't understand the power of that until I was much older, but I did know that I didn't need to feel sad, that it was entirely possible to feel elated, happy, joyous, um, any, any pick an emotion. I could, I could feel confused. I could feel wondrous. I could feel inquisitive. All of these things are things that I could choose to feel in any given moment. And I knew that as an actor that I could do that. And I also knew that 
any response is a correct response as long as it is a response, right? Like human beings are complex that you don't, it doesn't have to be just because it says in the script yells angrily doesn't mean that I actually have to yell angrily. I can be angry, but there are degrees to anger and I don't have to yell it. Sometimes the most powerful way of expressing anger is to not raise your voice, but to lower it. Oh yeah. I have to right. Agree. Because that's when you know that you are about to explode. Yeah. And- Watch out. Get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tyler's then, now, now there's a powder keg going. Right. And so I, I was lucky that I was able to be exposed to that kind of nature of thought, but my daughter is doubly lucky because not only does she understand that she can control her emotions, but she understands the intelligence behind it. For me, it was just one of those things that I stumbled upon and then understood later in life how to do it. She's actually being taught early on. You have control over your emotions. Let's label them. Let's name them. What are some of your triggers? Are triggers triggers? Do you have to respond this way just because something happens? My gosh. It's it's a beautiful thing. If our world, everything you just said, listeners, you know, the people watching this, take that information, rewind it and realize that if our world could have the awareness that Tyler's, you know, gotten over obviously life experiences, being able to start with such a young child, working with a school that's willing to work with you, not just dictate to you about how terrible things are and not really give you solutions is amazing. And the reason I want to highlight that is it is available to you. It's never too late to give a heck about how we raise our children by looking back at the things that we didn't necessarily like or didn't like. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with Kenzie. Like you mentioned, it's just that Kenzie's wired differently. And I look at the fact that, and I smile because as a side note, my one daughter, her daughter now, because I have grandkids, my five kids are all adults. She was a spitfire. She was with that Irish temper kind of thing, like you're talking about from zero to a thousand, like that it would be even at six years of age is rare. And yeah. I think, I think to myself now, her two and a half year old daughter is the same way at two and a half already. Oh, just all of a sudden I was there and seen him a couple of days ago. And my granddaughter was in a do-do-do-do-do. Next thing you know, it's like, <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like, holy smokes. And that's the first thing I thought about when you were mentioning that story, the commonalities that can happen and it's learned behavior and it's not and that's exactly it. And, and, and correcting it it's not even that yeah and, it, and again kenzie isn't wired differently she's just that this is her default switch currently and we can either maintain that as the default or we can look at developing other things it's you know i i think back on on you know me just growing up you know uh changes in attitudes, changes in beliefs, changes in, you know, uh, there was a time when I, my favorite food on the planet was uh, asparagus and it was all I would eat. And everybody thought that was weird because I was like two and I wanted asparagus, more specifically cream of asparagus soup. It's, it was my favorite thing to eat as, as a child. And now, I mean, it's okay, but it's not like my default is not asparagus right? If I had to pick a default food right now, it's probably a pizza pop because they're easy and I can consume them fast. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. But, you know, like those, those are the, you know, and if I could just, if I could pick any flavor, I'd probably go and get some pad thai uh, because I absolutely love it. And, and, you know, the, the, our, our palates change. And so it's entirely possible. Truth, though. Yeah. But our I mean, palates change, not just a, 
Yeah, our palates change on everything, not just food. Yeah. What we like to watch, what we like to listen to, who we like to associate with. When we're on the climb to change our lives, like you've been doing and I've been doing now for 30 years, I'm always on the climb. My associations change. People aren't meant to be with you the rest of your life either. And that's part of your palate, in my opinion. Yeah. No, and that's exactly it. You have people, and right, there's people who are there for uh, a reason, a season, or life. Yeah. And I, I, I'm always conscious of the, of the people. And, you know, I've had some, you know, amazingly tight bonded connections with people for a very short period of time. And I've had some very loose connections that have sustained themselves for a long period of time. I've also had very tight connections that have sustained themselves for a long period of time. So we, we have, you know, our flavors change and they should, they should. We, if you're not growing, you're dying. Well, you're on a hamster wheel. That's the easiest yeah. way to put it for me to tell people, well, you know, what does the hamster do? Gets off the wheel, goes and eats something, sleeps, gets back on the wheel. Really, it's it's a pattern, a cycle. They've stopped evolving and growing, but they don't have an opportunity. They're in a cage. Well, you can be in you can be in your own house and be in a cage. You can be in an environment where your cage is just a little bit bigger, right? But yeah. bottom yeah. line, you're stuck. I, 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 when I started realizing how much my associations were impacting my life and because of a mentor 30 years ago and how much I needed to evolve and change and do, you know, little baby steps. I didn't need to start running, but I needed to start doing this and I needed to be held accountable to myself, not anybody else, but I needed to have somebody correct and be my co-pilot. There's yeah. so many people out there that think they can accomplish change in life and grow but they're trying to do it on their own. So they slide backwards yet. If they had somebody that was telling them what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. Right. And yeah, correcting yeah. them, we'd grow so much faster. And I, and now my brain just thinks of the school you're talking about, how they're helping and working with you and doing that corrective action. You're willing to accept it and realize that she's this way now, but she can change. Yeah. And that's what listeners, you don't have to be six. You can be 50 you can be 60. I know people in their 60s and 70s that have decided they want to change and they, you can get mentorship and coaching. And, and myself, I'm going to have it the rest of my life. I have mentors. I will the rest of my yeah. life, even though I'm a coach. Oh, yeah. And I think it's it's it's, it's critical because what I saw a great post today talking about how um, one of the big problems the reason our society is so divisive right now is because we're not open to the possibility of being wrong. Right. Yes. I've, yes. I've the number of times that I've been wrong are just as many as the number of times I've been right. And the, and the fact that you even view it as right or wrong, I have an opinion. My opinion is not fact <laughs> and the ability to recognize and, and acknowledge that. And I'm constantly asking people to change my mind. Tell me your point of view. I want to understand it. Again, I'd be a charlatan in the training that I do because it's one of the things that I tell people. I say, you know, you, the thing you're afraid to say is what your ideal audience needs to hear. Yeah. It may not be what everybody wants to hear, but it's what those people need to hear. And we spend so much time trying to homogenize a message and say the, the right thing that um, I think we're afraid to say the wrong thing. And the, one of the beautiful things about saying the wrong thing is that you then learn. Yeah. Polarization is not bad. As long as you're not abusive about it and you're not hurtful, yeah. you can, you can tell your opinion. I've told my kids that since they were 
younger, you know, we'd have conversations, even as adults, and my clients and friends and family, I'll just tell them, you know what, if I'm unsure about something, how long have you known me? What do I usually say? I'll, I'll sit, voice my opinion and say, you know what, I am not sure exactly, right? This is what I believe. Tell me what you think, right? Let's have a conversation about it. But then there's times in my life where I'll say, this is the de facto standard. I know this is the answer. Like this is the actual correct course, right? Yep. And and I'm, I'm, I'll still listen to what you have to say and let's work through it. But here's why I won't just say this is this is why it is. I'll explain to them if they give me the opportunity how I came up with that solution, the trials mm -hmm. and tribulations or the verifications that I've done, whether it's life planning or life coaching that I'm doing or it's on their financial end, helping them with numbers and stuff. But we always have to be open to the fact that we may not be right. That word wrong, though, people even saying that word is not yeah. isn't, isn't palatable if that's the word, yeah. right? It's just yeah. wrong. It's just like, I like right. That's a pretty good word. Yeah. Right sounds good. <laughs> you are currently less correct than you'd like to be. <laughs> Bingo. I like that. Let's 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 stretch that out. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and and I think that's that's the important thing. It, uh, I think as you said, there's nothing wrong with polarization, but I do think that there is an issue when everything has to be black or white, where oh, it's absolutely. where it's where where it's forced into this binary decision of A or B. Um, when the reality is is that nothing, nothing, is A or B ever. There is always C, D, E, and F. You know, there 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 depending multiple... on their circumstances and who the person yeah. is. Even my definitive answers may be for me definitive, and what I say is my gospel or truth but for them fitting in their world their facade of what they live it doesn't it doesn't connect and click so yeah i agree with you there is always a you know a cde yeah even if we're blind to it at the time absolutely you know, I, I i can't remember what movie it was or if it was even a movie it was somebody was an analogy right and somebody you know i couldn't do it they had a gun to my head i had no option yeah. and the guy looks at him he goes well, you could have taken the gun and, and the guy was kind of like, I guess, you know, and then he went off and he, and the thing is what I liked about it was it wasn't just an AB, right? You either do it or you get shot. It was, well, you could have taken the gun or you could have taken the gun and turned it around. You could have taken the gun and disarmed it. You could have taken the gun and thrown it away. You could have pushed the gun and then ran yourself. Like there were other options to you. You were given a choice and you accepted it as a B, but there was, there were other choices. And I really, really like the analogy. I wish yeah. I could remember where, where it was from. Um, but I always yeah. thought about that, you know, gun to your head. What's, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I would, I'd want to remove the gun from my head. <laughs> like that would be my option. I don't want to be forced into your decision. I want to make my own decision. But what really at the essence of that though, it's a critical thinking thing. People haven't been thought to think for themselves. We're, we go through school as a pattern. We're taught different patterns. And even the, our brain gets into that, you know, that mold of how we're going to respond to things. So you're right. Everything is AB. Yeah. You know, you got a gun to your head. What are you going to do? Well, most people don't have the ability to think critically on the spot. And one of the things that I've utilized and gotten it's really helped me out. And, you know, obviously as a, as a speaking coach, I got into doing videos, mm -hmm. live videos, 
from March 1st, 2020 till March 3rd, 2022, I did over 375 live videos. I did one every single day. I put myself out there on the spot. Day one, I did a recorded video and I had somebody reach out to me and told me, you have to do it live, right? That's the only mm -hmm. way you're going to get past your comfort zone. So I started doing them live and I had, oh, I'd be sweating. <laughs> it was hard. And then not getting caught up on my words. Well, this long later, over two years later, when I do a live video or I do a recorded video, the flow is there because it's a muscle that I've worked, right? It's a yep. muscle to get past that fear. And now when I say stuff, I don't care if it's live or if it's on a podcast, if I make a mistake, I'll just own it. I'll correct it. Yep. If I say the wrong word, oh, I meant this word. Because you know what? Human beings, that vulnerability they see in that video or they watch on our podcast is important because they want to know that we're not automatons. We're not robots. We make yeah. mistakes and people need that vulnerability. Life's already hard enough where they're living a facade, even at their jobs or in their home life. If they're spending time watching Tyler and I have a conversation or they're watching my daily video, I need to give it to them raw and real. At our Power of Influence events, we call it confidence through competence, um, where you, in order to be truly confident at something, you have to get competent at it. And the only way to get competent at something, competence actually has a legal definition. It's adequately qualified, suitably trained with sufficient experience to perform the task with minimal or no supervision. And the real oh. key component is, to that that's, is you are qualified. Good. Yeah, you are qualified if you have the ability to do a thing, right? Like life experience qualifies me to talk about my life particularly around speaking. So I'm qualified to do it, but it's that training and experience. I can go and get training. I can get all the theoretical knowledge that I want. If I don't actually go out and then do it, it's nothing. Like you, it's the, it's the physical action of the doing and then doing it over and not being afraid to do it bad the first time, right? The first one uh, I pre-recorded. Well, no, that doesn't count. You got to go live. Oh, well, these first next three are not going to be so well, but then the fourth one gets a little bit better. And we start. Oh my to gosh. You look at right? my first stuff. It's Oh, because you can go back. I, I, was... post, I posted all of them. They're all on Facebook or IGTV, my you a, a secondary YouTube channel. And you watch some of the ones I first did as compared to where they are now. Yeah. Leaps and bounds different. I'm very likely about to falsely attribute this quote to Grant Cardone because I think it was him that said it, but it, I could very easily have been one of the other speakers that I follow or work with. Um, but I, 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 one of them, had said, it might even been a Mark McGrath, if you're not um, embarrassed by the first product that you launched, you launched it too late. I think it was Grant. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I, uh, that always sticks with me. Like if it, it, you know, or the Chinese proverb, when was the best time to plant a tree yesterday? When's the next best time today? You don't wait till tomorrow to plant the tree and you, you just, you got to go out and do it. And, you know, I've never, I've always been somebody who has, never been afraid to experiment again something i learned from being in theater but that that's how it's, you it's, that's how you grow it's how you right? grow and it's how you yeah. learn right you try that thing and if the thing didn't work at least you know it didn't work that's you know, why Edison's i like i like the phrase 990 go on well Edison's Edison's quote you know i i figured out 999 ways not to make a light bulb yeah you know ignorance on fire is better than knowledge on ice still one of my favorite things to live life you know, oh, I, get, I need to get perfect at it. I got to do this. So I'm coaching somebody that wants that wants to do a side hustle. They're out of career. They want to start a side business or they've had a side business. And, you know, oh, I, before I leave my job, I got to be here. And they don't realize when I sit down and I coach them on 
the numbers of or that what they're giving up being at the job and if they took that same effort and energy because their business is starting to function and work there's some you know things that have to be polished but i'll tell them like sometimes you just have to take a leap of faith and realize that that same energy applied to your side hustle you're going to make way more money you just need to get over get over yourself quit being fearful and sometimes if you don't know all the little steps you'll figure it out along the way Ignorance on well, fire is thing. better knowledge on ice because too many yeah. people have all this knowledge upstairs and they never apply it and they die with it. The music dies inside of them. Well, and it's this pursuit of perfection. I, I have no problem if you want to pursue it, but understand that perfection only comes with repeated effort alone. You can't, you can't wait for this. You have to be doing things if you want to get perfect at something, right? It's that 10,000 hours to become a master and a master is still not perfect, right? Oh, yeah. A master is just a master of the craft. They're still not perfect there's always somebody that there's always somebody that can help mold that clay a little bit better neil pert one of the greatest drummers of all time not just his generation still had a tutor still worked with a drumming coach neil pert yeah he was amazing neil pert is is constantly trying to find a way to refine and and hone his craft uh, we surely can. And, and yes, you can't just sit there. It's if I want to get six pack abs, I don't get them watching an exercise video. The exercise video may give me some tips on what to do and how to do some of the abdominal isolation, but I still have to get up and do a sit up. And one sit up alone is not, I can't do, huh, oh, this doesn't work. Look, my tummy does not, <laughs> it doesn't look like the dude on the video. No, the dude on the video has done a million crunches. Do a million crunches. You look like the dude on the video. You can't give up after 10 and say this doesn't work. And I think that's that's the thing that I, I, I'm most grateful for. Uh, those are the lessons that have really stuck in my life that it may not work the first time. It may not work the hundredth time. But if, it, if it's worth the effort, if you are doing the thing, and the other thing is, is too, is you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, right? The Einstein's definition yeah. of stupidity yeah. or insanity, rather. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to learn from those behaviors what are the ones that are helping you get towards your goal what are the ones that are hindering you from your goal modify the behaviors that are hindering you continue the behaviors that are helping you and and having the ability to recognize which is which is really the key well and then if you have a mentor or coach and they're and they're guiding and and pointing things out don't get butt hurt so people listening <laughs> number one i was thinking while tyler was talking when you're picking a coach or a mentor, because there is a difference, you can have somebody that's both, but you can have somebody that's just a mentor that doesn't, and somebody that coaches. But when they tell you something, learn not to take it personal. Because if you take everything personal, when people are telling you something, it's not always to be critical. It's to give you advice or give you, you know, their opinion about where you're wrong. And that's why you need a mentor or coach, even at my age, you know, I'm in my fifties, I'm going to get coaching and mentoring the rest of my life because of the fact that I can get to a point in my life where I stop seeing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And that mentor, when I'm talking to them about stuff, the simplest stuff, I belong to a, a couple of different masterminds. One of my closest friends that I have means the world to me, he's way farther in the journey and, and he's my mentor and coach. Tony Watley is amazing. Tony literally, well, on a call a couple of weeks ago, was, I said, oh, I really don't need to talk about anything. It was my 20 minutes. There's a group of eight of us. And he says, I really don't have anything to talk about. 
Yeah, you do. That's what he said. Yeah, you do. <laughs> What's going on? Why do you feel this way? Blah, blah, you know, I won't tell you what the exact specifics were. Well, the next thing you know, it was like 40 minutes instead of 20 minutes because we have a defined 20 minutes, but it can go longer, right? That's, you yeah. know, sometimes a call will be two, two hours. Sometimes it could be three and a half, four because he cares that much. But, you know, it was just, I was caught within my mindset. Listeners, that happens. And he was not willing to take my BS answer. And mm-hmm. he, it would have been easy for a coach or mentor just to poo-poo me and push me aside but somebody that's going to coach or mentor you, make sure they're not a poser. Make sure they're not a facade. This world has gotten so many people that pose beside fancy cars, fancy homes, show fancy vacations, yet they haven't helped anybody punch their way out of a wet paper bag. Yet mm. they're presenting themselves. So make sure that person is real and genuine. It doesn't matter if your coach or mentor has mistakes or you hear that they've had fallen and, and picked themselves up. That should give you you know, solace that they are a real human being. Just make sure that, you know, you put some research. Don't hire the first coach or mentor that you find, right? Research them. Yep. So one of the things, oh, go on. Go ahead. No, 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 go on. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to pivot away to something else, but first finish your thought. Yeah, no, I just did to, to echo that. I think, um, you know, finding that design alliance, with somebody who resonates with you um, and having clear objectives of why you're working together is, is really the key, right? Like what, what is the end outcome of this relationship? And if you can define those metrics so that, you know, because I, I, it's one of the first things we do in all of the discovery calls with my private coaching clients, like, what do you want out of this? Because there are so many different things that I can do to help people if I don't know exactly where you want to be, I have no way of knowing if I've gotten you there and I don't know where to push and where to hold back. So uh, having that real honest conversation, doing the research, finding the people who are going to be able to help you, but then finding the ones that actually resonate with you the best, because, you know, there, if I could, I could Google speaker coach right now and probably get a thousand hits. And I bet you, I'm not in the first 500 of the SEO but I know that there are people who are going to resonate with my message and there's people who don't resonate with my message. And those people I'm not going to be able to help. You know, the people who want to get up on stage because they just want to sell stuff. I'm, I, I know other people who I can put you in touch with. You want to, if you want to be that big stage present, that selling from stage and making a million dollars on from stage, because it's not me. You're, pre- I'm you're a message you. presenter. Yeah, I'm going to show you how to powerfully present a message, how to tell your story in a way that resonates with your audience. That may help you in business. It may help you with sales. I know that it can, but that is not my goal. My goal is not to to get to the monetization. My goal is to help you get to the ability to connect with individuals. What you end up doing with that connection is the number one thing, right? Too many speakers get up on stage and I belong to a couple speaking masterminds, a um, good friend of mine, Jake Ballantyne. He's, he's been a speaker for a long time. He's out of the U S and he constantly says the fact, you know, your message, you shouldn't be up on stage pitching everybody. I can't stand going to conferences or events over the last 30 years, especially the last, it's my 20th year in my finance business where all they're doing is blah, 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 pitch, 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 blah, 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 pitch, pitch, pitch. What is the freaking message? 
where's your authenticity? Where's your vulnerability so that I can connect with you so that after you've spoken, I can go look at you. At the end of your speech, you can say, hey, you know, if you want to learn more about me, this is how you find out. Here's my website. Reach out to me and we can chat more about the services and products I offer. I don't mind somebody ending but your damn yeah. speech better not be about that. It better be about, you know, some authenticity, some realism. And it, it, I don't see that nowadays in speakers. So I'm working on my own speaking business. I've been speaking now in a captive audience for this, my 20th year in the finance industry in the U S and Canada, but I'm going to a conference and for listeners that are new, my older listeners will know captive audiences. Somebody's paying to come to this finance conference. They don't necessarily, they're not coming just to speak to me, but yet if I'm a non-captive audience, maybe, and, you, and I'm bringing this up because you, you're welcome to correct me, I get hired by somebody to come speak on a specific topic and I'm on there and, and I'm, I'm promoted and people go, oh, wow, I'm coming to see that guy speak. I want to hear his message, not what he mm -hmm. sells. If that yeah. message leads to Dwight getting some business for coaching or, you know, for my finance side of my life, great. Yeah, no, and I think it depends, like you said, it depends on what the expectation of the audience is. Like uh, uh, the event that I'm speaking at uh, next week, you know, the headliner is, is well known. He's not pitching anything from the stage. He's got, I think, three hours at the end where he'll be just doing his motivational speak. People are coming to see him. The rest of the day is filled with both people presenting a message, you know, like Molly Bloom will be speaking there and she's not selling anything from stage. She's just talking about overcoming adversity and, and mindset and, you know, what she did to go from Olympic hopeful to I have a movie about my life where I was running the world's largest underground poker game and got busted by the FBI. You know, like she's, she's got a really good message, really good story. She's not selling anything, but in between there will be other people who are having a pitch. And one of the things that I like about speaking at this conference is there's not a lot of pitches. They, they space in between and the people who do do it. Uh, the one uh, gentleman that will be pitching uh, Phil town is phenomenal because as you said, his is not, his is both message and pitch. And he's, he's hands down the greatest speaker I've ever witnessed. The, the way that he tells his story, and he does, he tells his story. He talks about how he went from a Vietnam vet to being a river rafting guide, meeting his mentor who then showed him how to properly invest in the stock market so that regardless of where the market is, particularly right now, is a great time to go and follow what Phil's doing. Um, that you can, anybody can make money in the market, but they have to follow basically Warren Buffett style investing. Rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, see rule one. And the, the real trick is to learn how to make sure that rule one is always followed. And, and he learned this strategy. And so he talks about it and he shows, you know, that I'm just a simple guy. Like I didn't have any of this knowledge and this is what I've done to grow my wealth. And he tells his story and then at the end says, if you want to come to my thing, come to my thing. And he makes it very affordable. It's an, it's a, it, it is a pitch, but it but there's nothing a wrong with it. Yeah. It's exactly. Wrong it's not the manipulative it's, pitch. As long as it's done with some class, that's the word oh. I was might popped into my head with some taste and class and, and understanding the sensitivity of the emotional of what the emotional content of the room is. It's so oh, important and for us. And that's all stuff I'm learning because a captive speaker, 
versus the speaker I'm aspiring to work on being, it's completely yeah. different. Captive speaker, yeah. I'm on, I got the PowerPoint, I got this and blah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Completely different listeners. There's complete difference. So I don't even consider myself a speaker. I was a person standing on a stage, taking up some time, right? Yeah, there's a, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a presenter, mm-hmm. there's a speaker, there's a keynote, you know, all of these things, what, and it, that's really the first question. What are you hired to do? What is your intent? What is the, what is really, what does the organizer want from you? And ultimately, what does the audience need from you? How are you going to be of service to the audience? What is the expectation of the audience? And as long as you're fulfilling that, you're probably on top. But yeah, if anybody wants to see a masterclass in weaving story and sales and just being a, a, an incredible speaker. If anybody ever gets a chance to, to see Phil town live, Oh man, is he, and you, and class, as you said, you want to talk about class. This is a man who it could very easily be elitist and is hands down the most down to earth human I have ever met in my life. And his wife, is is incredible as well and those two as a power couple she goes everywhere with him like that's the other thing too phil and melissa are um they're just that i i have a huge admiration and respect for them and i treasure every time i'm in a room with them together isn't that great though i have a i have a few couples like that too and i've written this down um so i can check them out too we're gonna this is such an amazing conversation i hope listeners I'm totally enjoying myself. People watching it know I am because I got a permagrant on my face. One of the things, Tyler, though, I wanted to get into a couple more things here before we wrap up. Why is the ability to tell a good story, whether in print, video, or on stage, so important when it comes to impacting people? It's because story is how we connect. You know, um, I think particularly in this day and age, um, we take for granted our literacy level. We are living in a highly informed era in our society where the majority of people are able to read and write the spoken word, which has not always been the case. And you don't have to go very far back in history to get there. Like we're talking 150, 200 years ago, this was uh, uh, considered an elitist luxury and not a basic right. And one of the things that we've always had for as long as humans have inhabited the earth is this ability to speak and communicate and how we have most effectively communicated is through the power of story. You look at, you know, um, Greek historians, you look at early uh, humans, our interactions have been through the power of story. Even the earliest caveman drawings were telling stories of where to hunt and the conquest of, of the people. And, you know, these, this is where these are the animals that are safe. These are the ones that you can eat. These are the ones that will hurt you. These are the ones you have to defend against. These are the berries you can eat. All of these came from stories of I was here and did this thing. It's through the power of story that we connect as human beings. It's they, the proverb, right? I never judge a person till you've walked a mile in their shoes. Well, even though you and I are physically closer than most of the shows that I'm on, you're still up in Edmonton. I'm still in Calgary. For me to physically walk a mile in your shoes is actually quite difficult. But you tell me a story and I can see the world through your eyes. I can start to understand your point of view. That's where we get empathy. That's where we get sympathy. 
And that's where we can strip down the, those judgments. That's when we, the world stops being black and white because you're coloring the world for me through your eyes. You are painting that picture for me. And now, although I may not agree with your standpoint, I can understand why you have it. Telling me that this is how it is does not give me indication. Saying this is how I've come to understand this to be true to me does. And we get there through the power of story. So story is what connects us as, as a society. Story is how we can understand each other through differences and likenesses. And without story, we wouldn't be anywhere in, in society. You look at how even the news is a story. We understand things through the telling of stories. Yeah, it takes you through emotional roller coaster story. And I was thinking... You know, with you talking about speaking on stage and one of the things I've really gotten to understand is you need to take the person through an emotional journey. So on stage, it's a little bit easier than on print. Print, then you got to be very specific about what words you use and how you present it that way. Wouldn't you agree? It's a, there's a difference between doing it verbally versus putting it on print. I, yeah, it can be. And actually, I know that to be true because I, when I um, put together my book, I, I spoke it, not wrote it. <laughs> and okay. you can tell that I spoke it because just the way that, like, if I was to write, I am uh, significantly more cerebral in my writing than what I am in my speaking. My speaking is a little bit more natural. When I have time to write, I have, you know, I can pull out the thesaurus, I can come up with the fancy words on the fly. I'm having to think on the fly and not all the words come to me and even you know word choice but even that's more real though that's more real though no but it is true and that's yeah, the thing so like I love when that. i'm talking to you one-on-one -on -one, we can have a connection and it informs the language that i use where the book is really can be cold so one of the things that i always said to people was that i wanted to make sure that my book was in my voice so when i wrote the power to speak naked i did it by speaking it i thought it was that's such awesome. how ridiculous is it to be that. i'm a speaker coach and i'm going to sit behind the computer type it no i spoke my book and um and the language in it everybody who reads it says the exact same thing they're like wow it's like you're right here i'm like yeah probably because i was it's more like i was right here <laughs> i love that you know man i resonate so much with you i can't wait i'm glad that we live close because i go to calgary you come down we better get get together and meet up sometime because even though people think that you can't feel emotion or you know through video that's not true. You can. I have, I have gone through, you know, the emotional journey just from us communicating from the moment you introduced yourself has been amazing. And you can't get that on a phone call though. A video call no. I can, because now I can take the tonality along with the body language. I can see your eyes. I can see your mannerisms. And this is amazing though. One of the things that you brought up your book, so you, you know, you published again, listeners, you published the number one best-selling book, the power to, to speak naked. What started you on the path to writing that book and what can the reader expect to learn and apply from your book? Well, the first question, what started it was, I was tired of saying the same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> I was like, this would be so much easier if I could literally just go like this and hand this to you. And then you don't have to keep asking the same questions. Uh, the other thing was uh, the promoter that I was working with the, was like, I want to have you on, on my stage. I think you'd be a phenomenal speaker. I think you have a lot to offer, uh, but you can't be on my stage until you have a book. That was just, it was a requirement to be on his stage um, because 
they need to be able to monetize it on the back end and they don't want to be a big pitch fest. So they had to have something that that their attendees could either be given or that they could buy. And I wanted to be on that stage. And it was one of my goals. It was one of my bucket list things. So uh, a little bit of prompting from um, a need and a little bit of a, how do I make this easy? I just started to write what, what is the advice that most people ask me and what do I tell them? And so that I can, you know, it's the first introduction. So to answer your second question, what can people expect? They can expect a very easy to read 136 pages. According to my publisher, this is a 114 minute read. So that is just under two hours, uh, 10 chapters that will take you through, first of all, overcoming that fear of public speaking. And I will put, uh, I will give your listeners right now a big hint. You're not actually afraid to speak in public. Nobody is. And the very few people, it's not the 77% that claim to have a fear of public speaking. Um, if we had a fear of public speaking, commerce as we know it would collapse. And I know this because you'd never be able to order food in a restaurant. If you've ever ordered food in a restaurant, you spoke in public. If you didn't know your wait staff, you spoke to a complete stranger and you asked for what you wanted. So this myth that we're afraid to speak in public, that we're afraid to speak to strangers, or we're afraid to ask for what we want is completely and totally null and void. If you've ever gone to a restaurant and had food brought into your table that you actually enjoyed and wanted to eat. Uh, the reality is, and I already know, cause I can hear the listeners screaming, Dwight, no, but in a restaurant, nobody's looking at me. Well, so you're still speaking in public. And this fact that you're afraid to speak while people are looking at you informs me that you're not actually afraid of public speaking. What you're afraid of is public judgment. And so what the book will do is do a deep dive into how to overcome that fear of public judgment. I can't do anything to help you overcome your fear of public speaking because it's non-existent. It'd be like you coming to me saying that you're having a heart attack and the reality is you're, you have heartburn. You're asking for aspirin and what you need is Pepto-Bismol. I have all the Pepto-Bismol in the world that I can give you, but you're not actually having a heart attack and all this aspirin is going to do is make you overdose. So I need you to get honest with the fact that you're not afraid to speak in, in public. What you're afraid of is public judgment. If you use your words that they're going to be misconstrued or misunderstood, that you're afraid of the backlash that will come when you speak with a captive audience looking at you, that I can overcome. Because that is a story in your head that doesn't actually exist. And I have 10 chapters to go through it. How to be more engaging, how to tell a better story, how to get over the fear of public judgment, and how to really structure a talk. And again, confidence through competence. How do you become competent public speaking? Well, the only way to do that is to do it again and again and again and again and again. You want to find perfection, you have to do repeated effort. And the only way to do repeated effort is to find those opportunities to speak and they're endless. It's why I have a free Facebook group called Endless Stages because the opportunities are there. So uh, you will get out of the book, first of all, what you put into it. If you read to the end and you tab stuff and you highlight it and you use the resources, we have some QR codes in there that will take you to our webpage that is constantly updating the resources that are made available. It will make you a more confident presenter in the material. It'll make you feel uh, better about who you are and your messaging and your story and understand that you do have a story and your audience is on your side. So there's no reason for you not to tell it. Wow. I I think about, I was on a stage in Salt Lake City, and specifically Sandy, Utah, um, in October at a speakers, authors, and coaches event. And I was up on the stage and I paid to have it filmed, right? Because um, 
Jake's got his brother's got a, a company that does that stuff and to create a you know a, a speaker reel plus mm-hmm. record the whole speech and I was nervous because I, and I've spoken on stage but never in a sense where you know my topic of my speech you know 2008 was the worst day of my life like our part of me worst year of my life and I remember going up there and I'm speaking and there was a I think there was five people five or six people we all had to qualify to even be a person that was going to be able to be up on the stage to get filmed right Mm-hmm. And I qualified and Jake reached out to me and said, do you want to go, you know, where do you want to be last first? I said, I want to be first. I want to get it over with. And yeah. so in, in my little kitchen here, I set up my camera and I, he said, well, you have this width to walk, right? This is what you got to practice. So I measured it out and I practiced. And initially I had it, I read it. And then I got to a point where I screw that, threw it down. I'm just going to be mm-hmm. real vulnerable yep. if I mess up. And he says, well, he says, this is what we're going to do. When you record this, we, when we record this at the end, he says, we're going to, you know, we're going to have three of us here. We're all speaker coaches. We're because he had other professionals that were friends of his, as well as Kenny, my filming dude, he's going to say, we need to redo this and this and that. So it was originally when I practiced it, it was 18 minutes, right? That's, it was anywhere from 15 to 18 minutes. When I did the speech, it was 13 and a half minutes. That's what it ended up finalizing. So I'm nervous. I get off the stage, right? And he's not coming over to me. And I'm going, well, what's going on? So I walk over to him. I said, so what do we need to redo? He looked at me and he put his arm on me. He says, brother, that was so real and authentic. We don't re- need to redo anything. That was like one take. And I was going, oh, come on, man. Like, you know, I paid this money. If I need to read, no, he says, honestly. And then the other two guys come over and said, one of them, a girl, sorry says, you know, you don't know, absolutely not. Do you need to redo that? Well, then the other people after the fact that did the same thing over the three days, he'd have segments where they, we were doing this, had retakes. So I was, yeah. <laughs> my chest was pumped up. It was like, practice makes perfect. And you yeah. talked about that. You need to practice. Obviously, the next time I'm on stage, even if I practice up to that point, I'm going to be more confident and more confident and more confident. And yeah, so I'm excited this conversation has been amazing. I can't, I'm honestly, I'm going to order your book. Do you have it on audible too? Or is it just, uh, uh, I, funny enough that you ask, I'm, I'm just scheduling in my recording session to record the audible. Uh, so a good friend of mine runs a recording studio called red black studios, just South of Calgary. And, uh, we, we are getting the time on the book because everybody keeps asking. It was a thing that I was supposed to record, uh, two years ago, but again, life got shut down. And so I wasn't able to uh, record it. It was the audible version was supposed to come out uh, in launch with with the book in September of last year. And so no, it's not currently available in um, uh, on audible, but it will be shortly once we can get the recording session, the recording is going to be most of June, and then it should be out by September, um, is what my publisher is telling me. Um, but if anybody's interested in getting the book, they can get it the same place they can get Give a Heck, and that is on Amazon if they want. You know, Jeff Bezos is is definitely a, a place where you can go. I'm lucky in that my publisher Morgan James has has got my book into. Uh, brick and mortar stores so you Dwight could actually go to your local chapters or indigo and and pick it up right in in the store and not have to wait for shipping or anything um, I know that takes away from the joy of having one of Jeff's drones come to your front door but um, you know 
support oh, your local that, bookstore. That, that's that's funny. Yeah, my my book isn't in the local brick and mortar. I kind of wish it was, but uh, you know, it's it, it is what it is. Amazon's still the largest publisher of books on the planet, right? They literally, yeah. I forget what the stupid number is—a thousand thousand books a week or something get published. And whether yeah. or not, you know, but you know, one thing I want to before I ask you the last question, we wrap up here. I know my book. You talked about the fact that you're the person that wanted to promote you. You had to have a book. Listeners, yeah. a book isn't have anything to do with ego. A book is ability for me. I had repeated the same thing about for years with my clients and other people. Here's my origin. Here's the trials and tribulations. Here's the excitements. Here's where I am today. And my book's 150 some pages. And it's the same thing. It's it, here's my origin. Here's yeah. what I was as a kid. So, you know, a person literally doesn't have to have me on their podcast. They could just read my book, <laughs> read my yeah. book. And, but you know what I'm saying? A book is, it, it helps people know, like, and trust you. It gives you credibility. It's to me, it's a, it's a business calling card. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's, and it's, uh, it just, it's an amazing opportunity for us to not always have to repeat. It, it is, it's going to be there forever. That's another thing I like about it. It's a living yeah. legacy play while we're living and we created it and it's around now your daughter, uh, Kenzie, I believe you said, right. Yep. She has yep. the ability to, even if something happened to dad today, she'd be able to know stuff about your, your speaking career. And, and, well, how and you she thinks families. it's, she calls it her book because it's dedicated to her. So she's like, and this is my book. And she'll like, tell people like, oh, I, you know, it's, so it's, it's fun for me to bring her on the road because you know, she, she sells more copies of the book than I do just by being like, this is my book. And Keep, people are like, I don't think factor. you should have that cover. Um, yeah. So the cutest <laughs> factor definitely does. But one of the things, uh, one of the things that makes me the most proud of this book is in the acknowledgements, I, I acknowledged um, my six elementary school teachers. Um, and when the book was initially published, all six were alive. And unfortunately, in the last two years, I've lost in descending order, my grade six teacher, and then my grade five teacher, and I'm hoping that trend does not continue. Mm. Um, and one of the things that makes me most happy is that I was able to give them copies of it while they were alive and, and let them know that this was an accumulation of my life, but they were part of that seed planting at the very beginning. And, and it, it brought me great joy to be able to, to give it to them. It brings me great sorrow that they're no longer here. But again, I like the fact that I have a legacy that I've left to them and that their names are in print forever. That, you know, the copy of this that's in the Library of Congress is going to stay there. And if people wanted to look up Judy Nielsen or Pat McGuigan or Mrs. Young, you know, Mr. Irvine, that they can see them. And, and know that they had an impact on at least one person's life, if not many, but at least somebody who could acknowledge it. And so I, um, that's probably the thing that I'm proud of the most that, as you said, it's a living legacy. And I can, I was able to acknowledge both my past and my future in in acknowledging my teachers and their, their contribution to where I am today and my daughter and what she's going to achieve in the future. Wow. What a great, what a great way to put it. It's just, yeah, I, I have no regrets. That's for sure. It was very cathartic writing a book though. It was very, yeah. it was uh, like you read yours out 
I didn't necessarily do that, but I remember from October 2020, end of October 2020, when it was when I started it, and working with a publisher, and then going to the editors till finally releasing it in March. Even the release, I would when I was going to release it March of 2021, I was still second guessing myself. And mm-hmm. then back to Mastermind, I belong to my friend Tony. Tell told me, well, what's your problem? All right. What's, what's really holding you back? Like that's the type of friends that we need in our lives, mentors. But yeah, it was very cathartic to write that book and to get it out into the universe and my podcast to my daily vlog to my book. If I died tomorrow, grandkids that aren't even alive yet will mm-hmm. always be able to look up Papa Dwight. We'll always be able yeah. to find out. And that's what I think to myself. I want that. I want my music that's inside of me not to die. And that's what I kept on telling myself as I was writing that book, even though it was really raw. All right. There was points. Yeah. Yeah. I took stuff out, put it back. Took, you know, well, again, added if, other if, stuff. It was just. If holy. you're 100% satisfied with the book that's out in the world, you published it way too late. Like I, I, I read mine now and I go, Oh, oh Tyler. <laughs> There's a reason we have a second edition coming out next year because we needed to have the bigger, longer uncut version. So that's awesome. Congratulations, Zoe. Like this has been phenomenal. So Tyler, if you had to give our listeners one last closing message, what would you tell them in regards to giving a heck and never giving up? Well, I would say that um, your voice matters above and beyond all you have a story to tell and you have no idea who needs to hear that until you've told your story. Um, the power of story can literally change a life. If, if I may Dwight take a two moments to tell a quick story. Absolutely. Um, I had the privilege of speaking at a conference called life by design um, about five years ago now and added a good friend of mine, Jared spoke and he does a presentation called the 10 minute time machine. And I can't do it justice in the time that you and I have, but the time, the 10 minute time machine is about um, the, the moment in his life where he was able to finally achieve a 10 year goal of finding the correct combination of alcohol and pills that would end his life. And he was on this quest because he felt that his children would be better off with him out of his life, out of their life than in their life. And he wanted to do, he wanted to leave this world in a way that would um, keep their life insurance intact, where it would look accidental and, um, and they would, they would be taken care of financially. And the day that he did get this right, he hadn't had custody of his children at this point for two or three years, but the day that he got it right was the day that his wife uh, had left the children in his care so that she could have a a well-deserved and well-needed break. And he had faked sobriety enough, just enough to be able to get the children for the day. And then um, in his very mechanical, methodical way of living as an addict, um, put them to sleep, went to sleep himself, woke up, forgot that his children were there because why would they be? And went about his nightly routine of pills and alcohol. And, uh, that day was the day that he got the combination right. And just before he legally died, he remembers seeing his son over him saying, daddy, what's wrong? And being able to just barely mumble words about trying to get to 911. 
and his and and his consciousness everything in his being screaming you can't this can't be the day you get it right you can't do this in front of the children you have to hold on you have to hold on you have to hold on and he drifted off and then he uh, his son was able to phone 911 the ambulance was able to revive him but he needed to be revived he was legally dead and that moment changed his life forever and the reason he calls it the 10 minute time machine is he says, if he could go back and relive those 10 minutes, would he change anything? And the answer is no, because he needed to hit that rock bottom to realize what he, that he did need to live. He needed to have that, that moment of realization where everything just about was gone. And in fact, for a moment did leave um, for him to understand that life is precious, that his children do need him around that he, even if he's not going to be directly in their life as, as a, rearing parent that he is still their parent and that they need him in his life and that he needs to have a relationship with him. And subsequently he's built a beautiful and strong relationship. He's remarried to an incredible human being who is very, 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 very supportive of him and what he does um, and who he has become in the, in the last five, seven years um, is amazing given where he was uh, seven years ago. And so he was telling this story in the audience was a, a woman named Charlene and Charlene had been gifted a ticket to life by design. And she went to be polite because her friend had given her the ticket, but uh, the, co the conference was being held a Saturday and Sunday over the weekend. And she had a spot in the mountains picked out uh, the rifle cleaned and loaded and ready to go for her to no longer have to be in this world. And she had, she knew exactly where she was going. She had the plan laid out for Monday. She was going to do the, the conference and then do wake up on Monday and go do this thing. She heard Jared speak and she said, no, he's right. I'm wrong. I need help. And she reached out, she got the help that she needed. Fast forward one year later, she came to Life by Design as a speaker to tell her story because it meant so much to her. She'd never spoken on stage before, but she just knew that she needed to tell this story. So she asked the, um, the promoter and the promoter obviously agreed saying, this is powerful, I would love to have you on there. Charlene tells her story. Three people come to her at the end of the conference and say, we are in various stages ourselves. One of them had almost word for word the same thing. She was going to go the following day and, and do her thing. And the others were in various stages of planning. And they said, we need help. So Jared telling his story and understand it's a very difficult story for Jared to tell because he is in the financial planning industry. He sells life insurance. It's really hard for a guy who sells life insurance to say, I was suicidal, alcoholic, and addicted to pills and um, trying to kill myself for 10 years. That's that's can be career limiting if not told the correct way. Oh, absolutely. And for him to have the bravery to come out and say and tell his story and be real and be authentic, to have the impact that he had with Charlene, to then give her determination to then tell her story who then saved three more people that ripple effect as you said the spider web where you pluck the one one fiber and the whole tapestry vibrates you don't know what that where that initial ring of vibration will start but it could be you and your story could literally save a life you never know who needs to hear it and one of the biggest tragedies you can do is remain silent so I would strongly encourage your audience to understand that you have a message. 
you have a story. You don't know who needs to hear it until they do. And you do have the ability to change lives. Oh, absolutely. That is an amazing last closing message. I appreciate that. I know I, I was thinking before we close up here, I was thinking when I get your book and I go through it, we might have to have a part two because there's so much more that people need to realize, even if they don't want to become a speaker, just to delve more into the importance of what you just talked about and that we all have a story. And, and obviously you'll have tidbits that you could give them enough because there's going to be people that are listening to this, that it's just not enough information yet for them to reach out to you to learn this process. So I think we owe it to the listeners and to you and I, because I can obviously learn more. I'm all, I'm a sponge. I want to learn more. So I appreciate you being so raw and vulnerable through this conversation and and opening up and sharing with us. Um, So I want to respect our listeners and your time though. However, before we end, can you please tell the listeners what's the best way to reach you? I will be happy to do that, Dwight, but I would ask them if they are interested in hearing uh, a a part two of this, uh, do us a favor. Um, It's not easy to put on a podcast. And I respect a lot of what Dwight is doing, particularly with Give a Heck. So if you're a regular listener to this, if this is, if Dwight is providing you with content, I would ask that you hit pause on whatever device you're listening to this right now and give, give a heck a five-star review and then be detailed in it. What was an episode that had impact with you? Um, have you read the book? Did you read the forward by Tony? What have you, why are you coming to Dwight? What is, what is serving you so that he can do more of that? And if one of those is have me on for a second show, then put that in the comments Say you know, the episode with Tyler Foley was awesome. And we'd love to hear more of it. That will inform Dwight on what you as a listener is, is getting out of this. So I would, I would strongly I would ask uh, humbly if you are enjoying what you're getting out of Give a Heck and if Dwight is providing you value, if you could do him the favor so that he can get more guests and provide more value and have a larger platform. If you can hit pause right now, give it a five-star review. And if you're willing to do that, then as a thank you, if you come to my website, which is seantylerfoley.com and Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. Uh, on the land, main landing page that's above the fold, you can't miss it. Click on join endless stages. That is our free Facebook group. And when you join endless stages, I come live every Tuesday for 20 minutes at three o'clock Eastern noon Pacific, one o'clock mountain time to give a live presentation every Tuesday for 20 minutes. We answer questions from within the group, or we have content that we give you. We give a live training so that we can be interactive with you. And as a member of endless stages, we're going to give you a free download of the power to speak naked. So you can get the PDF download of it. That's my gift to you. We also give you access to my drop the mic speakers training, which is an online training uh, video modules that will help you start to learn the the basics of public speaking and being more confident with it. And we also give you a 20 minute one-on-one session with me so that I can just get to know you and, and, and find out where you're at in your speaking career and maybe give you some guidance. All of those things we make available, but only Dwight, if they're going to give you a five-star review, no five-star review, please don't come to my website. (laughs) I want want you, I, I want to reward the people who are taking action, not the people who are passively listening. 
Oh man, that's amazing. You're the first guest who is now my friend after 80, oh my gosh, what was this week? 84, 85 episode that went live. That's ever, I, I wish I could reach through and give you a hug. <laughs> that was amazing. I've never had anybody you know, do that. So I appreciate that. It's, it's a uh, yeah, warm, warm sensation, warm and fuzzies. I really appreciate you doing that. Listeners, I will make sure the information is in the show notes, which you can access at giveaheck.com. Hit the podcast portal button. Obviously you can hit any of the buttons and check out other things about me, but you know, specifically for the podcast, you can go into that podcast portal. There's actually a button in there too, that you can click to, um, whatever platforms you're listening on, it'll automatically recognize it and take you right to where you can leave that review and that five stars that uh, Tyler's talking about. So I appreciate your time, brother. This was fantastic. So thanks so much for being on Give a Heck, Tyler. I appreciate your time and sharing some of your experiences so that others too can learn it is never too late to give a heck. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website, giveaheck.com and until next time together let us all strive to give a heck